Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Coronavirus causes Provine to be postponed as drinks companies assess economic impact. Prosecco is the fastest growing category in France. Hard seltzer in the US. What is it and who's buying it? And as ever, our wine of the week. So first off, let's talk about our week in wine. And we both attended an event this week, Katie, that you helped to organise, Innovation and Quality. Tell us about it. Yes, that's right. Uh, Wine Business Monthly, the trade publication, uh, put on innovation quality for winemakers. Um, Winemakers largely local, but also from some different wine regions around the U.S. And this year was a little bit different. Um, It did have a keynote tasting and masterclass and a session on recent research. But the focus was winemaking trials. So we had about 24 uh, different winemaker trials, and the producers attended the event, pouring the wines and telling everybody about you know what they were doing. So there was everything from different yeasts, um, diff- different enzymes, whole cluster versus non-whole cluster. So lots of different things and a, a really great opportunity for winemakers to learn from their peers. And the keynote masterclass tasting uh, was really interesting. It featured Miguel Torres, and he delivered a video uh, because he chose that he did not want to fly to attend the event um, in his efforts to reduce his carbon footprint. Uh, As many of you know, Miguel Torres and the Torres family wines, they are kind of the leaders in the combat against climate change, um, the negative impacts. And so that was a a very uplifting and inspiring video. And it was followed by a tasting led by his sister, Marimar Torres, and her daughter, so Christina. And anyway, it was a a good event, uh, just one day at the CIA at Greystone, and encourage anyone that's local to attend next year because I'm pretty excited about the new format and it seemed to turn out very well. Yeah, not just local. I think it's worth flying in from wherever you are because you really do learn about all these different uh, winemaking experiences and experiments. And there was even a wine from a great variety that not only had no one heard of from Miguel Torres, but isn't even in Jancis Robinson's Wine Grapes book. So that was a huge surprise to try that. And that was very interesting. That was the Forcada? That's the one. Yes, I was hoping you'd remember what it was called. Mm. Extremely obscure. Very high acidity. Yeah, it was like a cross between Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc. Extremely mm. interesting. So mm. there's so much out there to, to learn about, and events like this really do help. What I also got to try, for better or for worse, is that uh, I got to try some low and even zero alcohol wine, which was on um, display at the event. Not normally what I go to a wine tasting event for, but these are drinks that are increasingly important and that we need to know about. Later on this pod, we're going to talk about hard seltzer and the potential threat it poses for the wine industry, but arguably the greater threat comes from within, with the trend for low alcohol wines, especially as the demand is particularly keen in traditional wine drinking countries in Europe. So the producer at IQ that I got to try was called BevZero, and they work with wineries all around the world to take alcohol out of the wines. Some of the wines had 0 or 0.5% alcohol, while others were around 9%. And these are actual wines which had been fermented, but then had the alcohol taken out. Whisper it quietly, but taking alcohol out of a wine does happen in the industry. 
but removing it altogether is taking it to an extreme. So Bev Zero uses a spinning top to filter the alcohol out, but have developed a more sophisticated alternative, which is a form of distillation, separating alcohol and aromatics, then bringing the aromatics back into the wine. So when they're actually removing the alcohol, and what I've noticed in the ones that I've tried, which haven't been many, but it seems that they kind of dilute the wine and the image of the wine. So I'm all for people drinking low or zero alcohol drinks. After all, we do that on a daily basis. But alcohol brings body and structure to a wine and is an essential component. There are, of course, dangers which come with that and which consumers need to be made aware of. But marketing these drinks as wine is like selling a red wine with the tannins removed or Riesling with the acidity taken out. Without getting too romantic about wine, these low or zero alcohol drinks are artificial and have very little to do with wine itself. There is a market, and I understand why people would want and even need to drink a low alcohol alternative, especially at the end of the night, but I think we should be very careful in marketing them as a direct equivalent to wine. And what was the packaging like on these wines? Um, Pretty standard. They they looked like uh, bottles of wine. Um, Great varieties were labelled and regions were labelled. The person I talked to um, spoke about how they really prefer warm climate um, environments to grow these grapes so they can get high alcohol and then remove all that alcohol but really leave acidity so it doesn't bal- it doesn't uh, clash with the low alcohol. Building it up to strip it away. Hmm. Doesn't sound like a very good business model. Well, according to the gentleman I spoke to, it is a very good business model. Lots of people in Europe are drinking these wines, Spain especially, and the, some of the wines came from Spain as a Tempranillo. So they are packaged like wine, marketed like wine, just without the alcohol. All very interesting. Now, on with the news. As we've discussed on the pod, uh, we've been looking forward to Provine, the huge annual wine industry event which takes place every March in Dusseldorf and which we were planning to attend. Uh, But on Saturday, we received an email announcing that the event is to be postponed until an unnamed future date due to the coronavirus. So we were kind of expecting this to happen, but Provine has been issuing statements that they were going to continue with the event, um, but as... As we've seen, it was just a matter of time. Uh, Given the spread of the virus in Europe, it's probably no surprise that such a large event, which attracts visitors from around the world, uh, has had to be postponed. And besides the direct effect on people exposed to the virus, it shows the indirect impact it has on industries and economies around the world. Pernod Ricard predicted the virus could cut sales by 2% for this quarter and profits by 3% for the year, but they were remaining calm, stating that that there was no reason to change their overall strategy. Meanwhile, Diageo predicted losses of 200 million pounds due to the closure of bars and restaurants in China, though they hope the situation will have returned to normal by the end of March. Treasury wine estates are another global giant affected by the outbreak due to their strong presence in China. Although they are uncertain about the direct impact, they have also warned of lower profits this year. Outside the wine and spirits industry, beer giant Imbev expected losses of 170 million US dollars, again because of the closure of bars and outlets in China. So these figures all revolve around China, showing just how important the country is to the drinks industry these days. The reason these figures are so dramatic is because China has seen radical growth in recent years, so the virus is quite a setback. Although we'd expect the pattern of increased consumption to return once the virus has been contained in China. 
However, the next question is how the rest of the world deals with the virus and how that will affect consumption in other countries. There's a clear human cost, but there is an economic cost too. As for us, and many others around the world, have to decide what to do now that Provine has been postponed. An ongoing topic of conversation in the wine industry revolves around threats, craft beer, craft spirits, non-alcohol drinks as mentioned above, and especially in the USA, hard seltzer. The international listener may have heard of hard seltzer, but may not quite understand this very American term. In the light of record sales figures released this week, we thought it would be a good time to discuss hard seltzer, what it is, and how we see the market developing in the future. So Katie, what is hard seltzer? Well, I guess the easiest way to explain what it is would be to compare it to sparkling water. Uh, So sparkling water is bubbly water, but it's naturally occurring. Uh, Whereas with seltzer, it's carbonated water by artificial means. And so what is hard seltzer? So hard seltzer is simply seltzer that is alcoholic. Right. So um, one of the first things I learned when I moved to the U.S., was the difference between cider and hard cider. Um, cider in the rest of the world is simply um, fermented apple juice, but in the US, cider is just apple juice, whereas hard cider is um, alcoholic apple juice. And so that uh, is the same kind of definition. Uh, confusingly for um, maybe UK listeners, um, one of the products that we take to cure a hangover is Alka-Seltzer, which is very, very, very different from seltzer that we're talking about. So I'm not really sure how um, seltzer can be marketed in markets like the UK where it has a very different meaning. Well, Alka-Seltzer is also very popular in the US and they don't seem to have a problem. Oh, interesting. So we'll see how um, sales develop. So let's talk about the trend for hard seltzer, which began in the off-trade with sales hitting $1.5 billion in 2019. But it's also booming in the on-trade, rising from $210 million in 2018 to $1.2 billion in 2019, so quite a rise. And we can see why other drinks categories see hard seltzer as a threat. However, maybe it's not the wine industry that should be worried, as, according to research conducted by Nielsen, drinkers are switching to hard seltzer from beer and cocktails. Where there's a threat, there's an opportunity, though. Nielsen's research also found that drinkers were open to hard seltzer-based cocktails, particularly with vodka. A repeat of the Red Bull phenomenon, perhaps. That sounds atrocious. It really does, I agree. But um, Red Bull and vodka were quite the trend in the late 90s, and that really cemented um, the um, position of Red Bull in the market, and helped vodka too. So what about wine seltzers? (laughs) That sounds equally horrific. Um... But yes, I I guess if you have a neutral wine like Pinot Grigio and add it to um, hard seltzer, there could be a market for that. So there's definitely opportunities. That might be just as good an idea as cannabis-infused wine. Yes, so all these possibilities of crossover, which, which could possibly affect the reputation of each industry, but could also bring people in to those different drinks. So... There's definitely um, different directions which all these categories could go in. And what do you think? Where do you think it's going to go, Katie? I think it's a fad. I think it will eventually at least plateau. And I think that people, I mean, we see younger consumers that are more interested in value and looking for quality and have a feeling that 
people will become more discerning and realize that they could get better value in things like wine and craft beer where you can get real quality. Uh, whereas with the hard seltzers, I just don't think it's quite there. But that may be optimistic. It's definitely a category to uh, keep an eye on. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it develops internationally um, because it's become very big in the US as those numbers um, uh, show. But can will international consumers um, be open to this style of drink and how will they receive it and how will it develop? <laughs> Consumers can't get enough of Prosecco, and that includes the French. Although the UK remains the biggest market for Prosecco, with 115 million bottles imported into the country, France has seen remarkable growth in the category, surpassing even the USA with an increase in imports of 35% to nearly 19 million bottles. Prosecco has established itself as easy-drinking alternative to champagne, served by the glass or in cocktails at bars, And although this shouldn't worry high-end champagne producers, it should be concerning for less expensive producers and for the Cremant category. That Prosecco is so popular shows the failure of Cremant to cement its status. It should be noted that these figures do include Prosecco imported into France and then sold on to the UK or the US. Nevertheless, the French are drinking Prosecco. And I was recently in France and I noticed that Prosecco was on the... um the menu and on bar lists, and I was quite surprised. I didn't think that uh, Prosecco in France was even um, a thing, but um, the Prosecco was there and people were drinking it. It is interesting that Cremant has failed where Prosecco has succeeded. And now for our wine of the week. So Katie, <laughs> what is this wine called? Skerzogard Sparkling Rosé. 2014, from the Dons region of Denmark. Well, obviously, our wine of the week is from Denmark. This uh, comes from when I was in Bordeaux recently, and I visited the Cité du Vin. The wine museum opened in 2016. That's right. He travels to France, to Bordeaux, and he brings back a bottle of wine from Denmark. Typical Matthew. Indeed. The museum itself is fantastic, immersive, and interactive, which anyone interested in wine, whether an expert or a novice, should visit. And there's also a wine shop, which besides an extensive range of French wines, has wines from all around the world. Like the museum, it presents a global rather than a local overview of wine. And there were bottles from countries I didn't even know made wine. Ireland, Thailand, Bali, Uganda, and you guessed it, Denmark. I limited myself to buying just one bottle and settled on the sparkling rosé from Denmark, figuring that if England can make quality sparkling wine, maybe Denmark can too. So Katie, you tasted it blind. What did you think of it? Well, I did have it tagged for something along the lines of an English sparkling wine. I could tell it was made in the traditional method. It had that sort of autolytic, yeasty, lazy notes, um, but just some beautiful strawberry notes as well, and super high acidity, which I love in my sparkling wines. Um, Didn't think it was champagne, but did go to England for sure, um, but was a little bit, you know, inconclusive about it. So imagine my surprise when I heard it was from Denmark. And so Dons is apparently, according to my uh, brief research, uh, a new the first region in um, Denmark uh, to be um, allocated as a quality appellation, and it's most northerly in the EU. 
and it's made from Rondo. What's that? Uh, Rondo is a grape variety which um, was developed in Germany and is um, suited for a cool climate, so no surprise that it's in Denmark. And although um, it may not have the quality of um, kind of natural vinifera varieties, it clearly works in a, in a cool appellation because it um, gets, keeps that acidity but gets that fruitiness as well, and there was a really nice fruitiness to this rosé. Clearly. You could have fooled me. So what's the price point on this wine? It was um, about 55 euros, so quite expensive. And as a one-off purchase, I think it was justified. You obviously could buy champagne at the same price, which would be of probably higher quality, though it was a pretty, a pretty good wine. Hmm. So I didn't feel like we wasted, I wasted our money on it. No, I was very happy with what you brought back. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gone. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio! Cheerio!